0: Welcome to Hazel and Katniss and Harry and Star, a young adult literature podcast, their film adaptations, and everything in between. I'm Joe.
1: And I'm Brenna.
0: And we are doing another one of those episodes where there's different titles and it becomes confusing. So,
1: I feel like our listeners can handle this.
0: (laughs) <laughs> really you don't think that they're going to be challenged by this jane austen knee?
1: i have faith in our listeners so this week we read emma by jane austen and we watched the it's the
0: 1995 film the yes. perfect
1: film clueless it's not perfect actually there are components that don't age super well but it's very delightful nonetheless
0: This is true. And Mm -hmm. to help fill in the Austin-y gaps, I have invited someone who is very well attuned to Ms. Austin herself. So we are joined this week by Brennan Klein. Hello. Hello. I was going to say you're from multiple other podcasts, such as Scream 101, as well as Queer Wolf, Attack the Queer Wolf. But really, we're we're not using any of that knowledge. We're just bringing you in for the Austin.
2: No, look, I'm really excited to be able to stretch my non-horror muscles. (laughs) any opportunity to do so is welcome
1: and we need a Jane Austen super fan this week because Joe and I Speaking. were both confessing off the top that and I love I love Emma and I love Jane Austen but I was not in a place this week for a lengthy and thoughtful book that I had to really attend to and so I'm grateful to have someone here to be like Brenna what the hell that didn't happen what are you talking about? <laughs>
0: and this was my first time reading a jane austen text this blows my mind joe it's infuriating no everyone is always very confused how did you get through without reading at least pride and prejudice but it just it never (laughs) came up
2: did you at least see pride and prejudice in zombies
0: oh god actually you know what i think i've seen excerpts of it i didn't mind it apart from the cgi nonsense but I will say that the Jane Austen adaptation of Pride and Prejudice, the Joe Wright film from 2004, is my favorite film from that year. The okay. one with Kira Knightley. It was
2: lovely. I feel like that reasonably well captures like the way that she wrote her books, and a lot of film adaptations don't. But we'll, we'll get to that. Whatever.
1: I'm going to super surprise everyone by saying that I have not seen Pride and Prejudice and Zombies. Is everybody shocked? <laughs> Are we shocked?
2: No, you've done yourself a service. <laughs> <laughs> it's for the best.
1: But before we get into it, uh, homework. gentlemen. who wants to go first?
0: I will go first. So I will keep mine relatively brief. For listeners who may not know, we are recording this just a little bit in advance. So I am coming off of the Toronto International Film Festival, and tomorrow I will be en route to Fantastic Fest. So I am in the midst of film festival nonsense. And as a result, I have had no time to do reading of any kind. So... I'm going to bring a film that I saw at TIFF, which, Brenna, I texted you to confirm it's actually an adaptation itself. So we will be able to do this down the road. Yay. So I'm going to talk about Taika Watiti's adaptation of Jojo Rabbit.
2: Nice. Oh, my God. Tell me everything.
0: Yes, so this is a film about a 10-year-old boy who lives in Germany in the end days of the Second World War, and he is a staunch Nazi advocate. So he wants to become a member of the Hitler Youth. He's super excited about the Fuhrer because the Fuhrer is his imaginary best friend. So there is an Adolf Hitler in this film, and he is played by the director himself. (laughs) And the film has got a lot of flack, Because people feel that it is doing a disservice to the plight of Jewish people and it's rendering Adolf Hitler a a normalized kind of enjoyably sprite and funny figure. Which I would say if you actually see the film, which most people who are having an issue with it have not because it has not come out yet. this film is actually quite wonderful and i think it would be easy to suggest that it's making light of things but when you see it you understand that it's all filtered through this 10 year old's perspective and he doesn't know any better and the film is actually very much a coming-of-age film about his realization that the jewish people are smart and they have worth and they are people themselves with Values and you know goals and ambitions and they have rich lives that they deserve to live and obviously those circumstances have been thwarted by the Nazi occupation but it's also about him realizing that his adoration of Adolf Hitler is misconstrued and that Nazis are bad and all this other stuff but it's rendered absurdly comedically hilariously funny in a lot of different ways and it's kind of that spoonful of sugar helps this terrible situation go down a lot easier
2: are you meaning to tell me that characters end up in different places where they begin
0: (laughs) (laughs) i know it's absolutely shocking in the hands of a lesser artist it could have been Mm. done very very badly yes (laughs) and i think for a lot of people their fixation was actually the portrayal of adolf hitler Mm -hmm. as opposed to this boy because you can excuse a child to a certain extent for not knowing all the differences between right and wrong Mm. But I don't think that they understood that this is not Adolf Hitler. This is a 10-year-old's perception, like the idealization. It'd be the equivalent of loving a basketball player or somebody else where they're not a real person. They're a figment of what you perceive them to be based Mm -hmm. on propaganda, based on newsreels and all these other
1: things. I mean, we're talking about the director who managed to make a Thor movie that was entirely about colonization so like i trust him yeah (laughs) i trust him implicitly to be smart and empathetic and always on the side of the marginalized Mm -hmm. i'm really excited to see this one i also joe do you listen to the podcast unreserved
0: i don't but i think i've heard it. yeah
1: it's a cbc radio show and international listeners listeners in the states you can download it it's available in your region's It's the CBC radio show that focuses on sort of indigenous arts and culture issues. okay. Yeah, and the host is amazing. Her name's Rosanna Deerchild. And the episode that I listened to this week was her at TIFF, because I guess at TIFF this year, there were 13 indigenous films being screened, which is the most ever.
0: They've Been making deliberate efforts to increase the number of women directed films as well as vary the types of content. So, yeah, there was a lot heavier presence. Like, the opening film was actually an indigenous Canadian zombie film,
1: yes. And so, she was interviewing all the different filmmakers and actors and stuff. Uh, and she, but she was the, the thread through of the episode was her standing on the red carpet on Taika Waititi Watch, uh, because <laughs> they, they show tried to get an interview with him and they couldn't. Anyway, she ends up like gorillaing him and like interviewing him real quick for the show while he. His PR person is, like, yanking him away. It's kind (laughs) of amazing. Very worth listening to this week's episode of Unreserved for that.
0: (laughs) That's delightful. Mm -hmm. I mean, he is an absolute delight from everything I've heard about him. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. So, all this to say, Jojo Rubik comes out, I believe sometime in mid-October so a couple weeks after this episode drops so I would encourage everybody to give it a chance if you were maybe on the fence and you were uncertain I can personally attest that it is very very funny it's very smart and it's well worth your time and effort
1: cool thanks Joe
0: Mm -hmm. who's next
1: Brennan do you want to go I heard that you brought homework
2: I did Ah! I prepared love it yeah, actually, I don't know if either of you have read it. It's uh, the book uh, Darius the Great is Not Okay by Adib Karam. Have either of you read that?
1: No, but I, I love not. the title a lot.
2: Oh, yeah. See, well, I got drawn in by the title and also the cover, which looks like a melted creamsicle. Amazing. <laughs> oh. It's got this uh, beautiful orange teal cover, which you know is generic movie-making kind of color pattern, but it works really well, and it's kind of this pastel like bucolic kind of cover, and like, okay, I need to read this book. Mm. It's about an Iranian American teenager named Darius. His mom is from Iran, and his dad is this like super Germanic, like, you know, blonde hair, blue eye kind of guy. It has the same kind of beginning initial concept as that movie, The Farewell, at least in the sense that he has a grandparent who he's never met in Iran who has a terminal illness, mm. so they're all going to visit the grandfather. Nice. And this is a kid. He's struggling with his weight. He's struggling with depression. He's struggling with bullying and also just like a really unsatisfying relationship with his father. Like he feels like they've grown apart mm. since he was a child. And this is a story about him making his first friend. Hmm. He meets someone, a, a boy in Iran named uh, Sarab And it's the first person he feels like understands him. And it's kind of about the pitfalls of what it's like to place a lot of expectations on a person who is you know only a human being but then like what it's like you know the bonds of friendship and i really really wanted them to kiss at the end and that's not <laughs> what this book is just I was gonna warning say you. that doesn't
0: sound like a queer romance it just yeah. sounds like a good friendship novel
2: yeah it it, it was really really interesting at, at first i wasn't sure what to do with it because the, there is a certain amount of kind of pop culture references a lot of like star trek references weaved through everything and i i found it at first to be a little I was like, okay, I get it. We're doing this. It's
0: to feel shoehorned in.
2: It's not. It just felt a little uh, I don't know, signposty for me of like, oh, this is a trendy teen or whatever. Oh, okay. And the plotting is very simple and I wasn't sure what to do with that at first, but eventually, like towards the end of the novel, you realize like how richly complex and emotional all of these characters are. Mm-hmm. And I became incredibly invested in everyone's journey. And while the book it's not apolitical. Um, it definitely talks about religious persecution within Iran within the different religious sects there, mm-hmm. but it's not alarmist from an American standpoint. Yay. It's about just good. Yes, you know, the lead is an immigrant who doesn't feel like he belongs in the country where he's supposed to come from. and it's a story about not belonging and finding a place where you belong. Mm-hmm. And right. it's not afraid of Iran. It's very tender and gentle for a lot of the culture that it brings. And I think it's gonna be really important in a lot of teenagers learning something about the world, whether or not they think it's gonna be one of them gay romances. They might've been tricked, but (laughs) it was really, really good. I really liked it.
1: Oh, I love it. That sounds awesome. Can you give us the title title again? again? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah,
2: it's (laughs) it's called Darius the Great is Not Okay. It's by Adib Karam.
1: Nice, thank you for that one. No problem. My homework is really quick. It's late breaking news. It's, I think, extremely important news. That said, we are recording this in advance, so by the time you get it, it won't be news anymore. It'll be old, but that's fine. They are rebooting "Saved by the Bell."
0: Oh my goodness! <laughs> sure.
1: Okay, I really felt like that deserved <laughs> a much bigger reaction. It
0: just landed like a wet. Thud, I'm really
1: didn't disappointed. It? Listeners, please write in.
2: I, I didn't watch the show.
1: I'm sorry. Now, yeah, see, that's just that makes me sad. Anyway, for listeners who are cool,
0: you have to remember that Brennan is a few years younger than us. Yeah. Well, How
1: actually so. dare?
2: Wait, wait when, when, when did this show come out?
1: By the time I was watching it, it was on like just constant reruns in the oh, wait, afternoons. Okay, 90s, for sure. It ran from 1989 to
2: 1992. I literally wasn't alive for the entire run of this TV show.
1: Joe, stop inviting these people on the show.
2: <laughs> I don't understand
1: what I'm supposed to do with this information. <laughs>
2: <laughs> but surely,
0: Brendan, you've seen, you must know of it sheerly to the... Meme okay. culture?
2: Yeah. wait, wait. I know almost too much through just absorbing cultural conversation. Um Slater, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's okay. Maria Lopez. Is there a person named Turtle in this one?
1: There's Lisa Turtle. There yes. is. Yes.
0: Elizabeth Berkeley was in this. This is where she was famous before she went to Showgirls and ruined her career. Yes.
1: This is where she got really famous for her hard-hitting episode where she did a drugs. <laughs>
2: is it i'm so excited i'm so excited yeah that's the
1: the caffeine pills one
2: okay see i know stuff
1: you should know stuff also there was saved by the bell the college years and then saved by the bell the new class so this is not the first reboot of the program mark paul glosslar gossler is in talks to come back as zach morris who in this iteration is the governor of california Oh my goodness! Uh huh. Okay. And the premise of the show is that he has closed a whole bunch of failing high schools in poor neighborhoods, and all the poor kids have to go to Bayside High. <laughs> oh my goodness! <laughs> Even uh... I recognize that it sounds atrocious conceptually. So they're
0: attempting to be politically yes. relevant by introducing people of color into what was once more or less an entirely white show. Well, uh,
1: Lark 40s, there was like what right? one? Yeah, Lisa Turtle. Yeah. There's yeah. turtles black. And Mario Lopez, obviously, is Latino. Hot. <laughs> he's something. Yeah, he's that. But
0: Latino. He, also, he also passes quite easily yeah, no, no. for white.
1: Well, absolutely. And uh, his, also, his role in the show is not exactly like... He's not there to be spurring interesting conversations he's ac slater yeah. anyway um apparently elizabeth berkeley is already signed on to return but she's the only one and mario lopez and mark paul goslar are in talks and nobody else has been referenced yet at least in what i've seen so far but i will i was gonna say i'll definitely watch it it's gonna be on nbc's streaming platform which means i probably i'm not gonna watch it because who's <laughs> seriously gonna buy peacock anybody wait is that
2: what it's called
0: yes that is what it's called it's atrocious it's
1: uh, honestly everything is reboots they're doing a reboot of punky brewster they're doing like the whole thing is the lay moon fry coming back
2: no okay question i don't
1: know. (laughs) i don't know know. anyway the whole peacock streaming platform thing looks creatively bankrupt and this is just another example of that but for my fellow og millennials i needed to share that the beloved saved by the bell is in fact coming back
0: I think we can probably thank or blame the recently revitalized Beverly Hills 90210 for giving this a little bit of extra oomph.
1: Oh, totally. And, you know, <sighs> it's one of those things. I was at the library this weekend getting books out with my little one, and they have, like, X-Files books for toddlers, like X-Files episodes Aww. rewritten for toddlers. And I was just, and we got we got them out of the library, obviously. And I was like, <laughs> clearly, this is totally what my generation does. Elder millennials, this is what we love to do. We buy up the ridiculous nostalgia for our own youths and then we cram it down our children's throats and this is just yet mm-hmm. another great example
0: <laughs> i mean if you think about it in two of the three examples of homework this week we're talking about that very purpose right yep. because there were the star trek or star wars references brennan
2: a star trek yep okay yep
0: not to be confused because i don't want to be on the receiving end of that hate
1: now <laughs> og millennials just like to take the things we got made fun of for liking in high school and force everyone else to find them cool that is our entire cultural moment
0: you're welcome, yeah. everyone. <laughs> so, hey, that is a fantastic segue <laughs> to talk about Emma and Clueless. Yeah,
1: it actually kind of is. Okay.
0: So, Brenna, what is this Emma thing that all the kids are talking about these <laughs> days?
1: Nothing's cooler than Jane Austen in any century. And I, I mean that. That wasn't sarcastic. So, Emma by Jane Austen is, uh, I mean, it's a domestic comedy, like most of Jane Austen's work it's the last one that was published in her lifetime and i i fondly refer to both emma and persuasion which was finished in her lifetime but published posthumously as the idgaf austin era like where she just (laughs) like she said that when she wrote emma she was trying to create a character who no one would like but her in the character of emma
2: i literally have the quote it's i'm gonna take a heroine who no one but myself will much like
1: yep yep and in wow. persuasion i mean persuasion pushes it all even further in persuasion she is just snarky to the max but there is some of that here in emma so if your if your whole like kind of framework for jane austen is pride and prejudice looking to these kind of later texts for some of her more biting satire and her more kind of angry tone i think is a good idea
0: out of curiosity was jane austen was she a spinster in the end she, never she did married.
2: not get married if that's what you're asking <laughs>
0: Well, yeah, just because I wonder if that started to influence the way that she was approaching her writing, because so much of her writing is about a woman's status and how much marriage ends up playing into that right like this whole book is really just about women being trapped and trying to marry their way out of it
1: a lot of critics have talked about how Austen's fiction is it is sort of varying stages of wish fulfillment at varying stages in her life persuasion hmm. is probably the closest to being autobiographical in terms of the options that she had for marriage she turned down i think two marriage proposals but you also have the other recurring sort of anxiety in these books that relates to what you're saying joe is women have no opportunity other than marriage to change their class position so the only way you secure a future for yourself and any children you intend to have is to marry well and this is often a recurring anxiety in her books when there's a father who is dying or ailing you know there's always this anxiety about what is going to happen to these daughters who until they marry are cared for by their father they can't earn their own livings they can't get meaningful educations you know we have one character in this book who's been educated and we hear what everybody thinks of Jane Fairfax right <laughs> yes um so
0: why oh, don't like her
1: <laughs> the whole thing is about the sort of limitations and like circumscription around women's lives in particular which is what makes Jane Austen super radical. We read these books and we're like, there's nothing radical about this. But the fact that she's like talking about the needs need that women had to machinate and plan for their future and seek better marriages, that's pretty revolutionary stuff. Mm -hmm.
2: Yes, absolutely. And even in her early text, the satire is biting. Mm -hmm. A lot of people are taught to approach Pride and Prejudice as this really like stodgy literary text, (laughs) but it's a really sarcastic, mean novel. (laughs)
1: It is. And there's one adaptation. So I used to teach Pride and Prejudice every semester. And one of the things I always had students do was read it alongside of the Lizzie Bennet Diaries, which is a YouTube series. It's great because it's bite-sized. So students could pick like one episode and one scene from the book and write a comparison. It's really just like pedagogically handy. But it's also nice because that web series does a really good job of making contemporary the kinds of anxieties that Austin is writing about unfortunately it aged really fast like I go back and watch it now and I'm like "Oof, this aged super fast um but at the time it was really useful I guess we should do a plot summary hey Joe I can feel you grating your teeth
0: it's mostly just because I feel like people are familiar with Pride and Prejudice yes. and maybe not so much Emma. maybe
1: not so much Emma
2: okay so you Want me to talk about Northanger Abbey real quick <laughs> yes always
0: I mean, any Jane Austen is on the table because, really, I think apart from Pride and Prejudice, there's no other adaptations that could be considered adapted into
1: YA films, are there?
2: Oh, um, no.
1: No, not that. I mean, not that <laughs> oh, I. Can oh, think oh.
2: Of. Uh, Sense and Sensibility was adapted into Material Girls with Hilary and Haley Duff. Oh my God, you're oh, right.
1: Wow. You are right. Okay, we'll keep
0: that one in our back pocket for a rainy day. Gosh.
2: Bring me back. Love
1: <laughs> I love me some Hilary Duff. Um
0: I have two podcasts and somehow <laughs> Hillary Duff comes up on both of
1: them <laughs> all the time.
2: You know a lot of gay people, Joe.
1: We were sent this to try true. you, Joe. Okay, so the novel opens with our protagonist, Emma, and we're told right off the bat what to expect of Emma. We are told that Emma Woodhouse is handsome, clever, and rich. She's a spoiled character. She has a tendency to overestimate herself in all kinds of important ways, particularly in the way she views and approaches other people's relationships, because really this is a book about matchmaking (laughs) failed matchmaking Mm -hmm. and the importance of the match right in a way that I think I kind of already said this I guess but it's really easy to underestimate like to think that this is just a book about marriage is underestimating the significance of marriage in the context that these women these particular women in their particular class position are living with
0: yeah from a contemporary audience perspective like I know a little bit about Jane Austen, and I think it would be very easy if you didn't have that kind of background to just read this and be very condescending about the fact that it's a bunch of people trying to negotiate different marriage plots, but that would be to do it a grave disservice.
1: Yes, agreed. And fittingly the book opens with a wedding. We uh, open with Emma having just returned from the wedding of Miss Taylor. Miss Taylor was her friend but probably more importantly her governess. Um, I, I'd say less importantly.
2: <laughs> well, she's not a very good governess.
1: No she's not a good governess that's fair but that's how she has the intimacy and the and the connection to the family. So she's been she's married and Emma takes credit for the match that has, that has taken place. She's the one who introduced, introduced them to each other. And so she's kind of come back from this wedding all full of herself with this sense of like, look how good I am at matching people up. And she gets the idea that her friend Harriet, who is a woman of no means and from no family of note, she decides that she should be married to the local vicar, um,
2: Mr. Elton.
1: Mr. Elton, thank you. You're welcome. (laughs) So we start off on this whole attempted matchmaking, and there's a few things going on here. Harriet herself is actually interested in Robert Martin, who is a farmer, kind of an educated gentleman farmer, who has a connection to Harriet through family. And at the beginning, Harriet kind of likes him too she talks about him they have this kind of similar worldview similar background and Emma's like nope no no (laughs) no 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 I gotta break this whole thing up because she wants Harriet to marry well she wants Harriet to marry into a better situation and she doesn't see Robert Martin as offering her a better situation.
2: The thing is, she wants Harriet to marry the person that she has chosen. She doesn't really care about Harriet. No,
1: she doesn't. But she tells herself that it's because if Harriet is to marry Robert Martin, she drops out of their social circle, right? Because they can't be consorting with farmers and farmer's wives. And so Uh, it's really important to her. You know, it's like it's a little bit of control. It's a lot of classism. And so she sort of breaks up that potential engagement. Robert Martin makes an offer and Harriet rejects it. And she sort of pushes Harriet towards this Mr. Elton. And that's not great because Mr. Elton is actually in love with, oh, wait for it, you're going to be surprised, Emma. (laughs) And so everybody can tell this except Emma for some reason. So we have this whole thing going on with like class and who belongs to whom and who belongs to what register of society because Mr. Elton's like, there's no way I'm marrying Harriet. I'm going to marry a woman of means because he too wants to improve himself through his marriage. So that's sort of like where we open, well, I mean, it's like the first half of the book, is this like machinations around this particular match and whether or not it's going to be achievable. At the same time, we have a character named Frank Churchill who has been adopted by a wealthy family. So he is not really of means, but he's been adopted out to a wealthy family. The connection here is that he's the stepson of the governess from the beginning of the plot.
0: The Westons.
1: The Westons. It's, it's a
2: big job to parse out all of the connections, but whenever yes. I
1: teach Jane Austen, I we my students and I, the first class, we make a map when like we connect yeah. all the characters to each other, and like that's
2: really smart.
1: It's really good to have visually, and I didn't do it this time, and I'm gonna get confused. Um yeah.
2: I can't help you with that. Just turn to me, <laughs> my open arms.
1: <laughs> yeah. I'm glad you're here, Brennan.
0: But also. This is your too granular alert.
1: Oh, okay. I don't know how to be less granular. Like, I'm only halfway through the book. Okay, fine. Wait, wait,
2: can, can I help?
1: You can finish the plot. Do you want to finish okay. the plot? Yeah, I can try. Okay, go for it.
2: Okay, basically, Emma is trying to hook up Harriet with all kinds, just anything, any man who's better <laughs> than her. Anything <laughs> that moves, really. Anything basically.
1: that moves and has a rank.
2: <laughs> yeah. Someone we have not mentioned, her sister's brother-in-law, Mr. Knightley, who pops in oh, all the time.
1: Mr. Knightley, aka just another Mr. Darcy. Go on. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah.
2: he's very judgmental of Emma. He thinks she is spoiled. He's the only person who will call her out on her wrongdoing and her, shall we say, cluelessness.
1: Ah. Uh, I see what you did there.
2: Yeah, thank you. (laughs) Basically, in short, Emma starts to think that she can maybe have a thing going with Mr. Churchill, but she also thinks that Harriet is in love with Mr. Churchill. There's a whole thing. Mr. Churchill's secretly engaged to somebody else in town who we hate because Emma hates her. Jane Fairfax
1: Jane Fairfax
2: yes oh I love how much she hates Jane <laughs>
1: I love how much she, she is her. super mean she's oh yeah
2: really mean
0: the fact that a Luddite such as myself can see the venom dripping off the conversations that she's having with Jane or the thought she's having about Jane Fairfax. oh yes
1: which makes me laugh because I always think that Jane Fairfax is like sort of situationally most analogous to Jane Austen herself so I find that so fascinating
2: and literally the same name Yep. <laughs> But yeah, and so she gets herself really mixed up about what Harriet even wants. Harriet ends up actually Because she doesn't wanting. ever
1: ask her. Nope.
2: <laughs> um, she just assumes everything because she thinks she's the smartest person in the room because what everyone has always told her.
1: Yeah. Yeah, her dad has a lot to answer for. Every dad in every Jane Austen has a lot to answer for. Oh, Yeah. <laughs>
2: But basically Harriet's actually in love with Mr. Knightley.
1: What? Which
2: infuriates Emma to the point that she realizes that she's in love with Mr. Knightley. What? And as she has superior claim to his affections, she takes Mr. Knightley. She sure does. And Harriet And <laughs> yeah, she up... sends
0: Harriet away. And then she's <laughs> yep. like, by the way, I got my man.
2: Yep. And then eventually Harriet gets married to that farmer because look, she's so lucky he was sitting around waiting for her. Oh that... my god, I know. <laughs> That is not a guarantee, my friend.
0: (laughs) Oh, man. But everybody ends up happily ever after. So Frank ends up with Jane, as they had secretly been planning all along. That was the most interesting part of the book to me, was what was going on with Frank and Jane and all of the mysterious conversations and why they were always, like, leaving at different times and stuff.
2: Oh, yeah. Yep. Intrigue.
0: (laughs) So... Can we start with the fact that this is both written from principally Emma's perspective, but that there's actually a narrator that has opinions about everybody? Because (gasps) it took me forever to pick up on that.
1: It's my favorite thing about Austen is that regardless of what else is happening, the narrators are always even more judgmental and snarky (laughs) than the characters. Always. (laughs) So good.
0: Yeah, I don't know why it took me so long to catch it. I think part of it is my struggles with the language. Like, I I didn't find this an easy book to break into. I kind of thought that I would be able to speed read through most of it because I had a familiarity with the story, and then I just got really bogged down a lot of the time. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But I did notice that, particularly during passages when... Emma was thinking about her interactions with people or when she was kind of having internal monologues about what she thought of them. (laughs) I started to realize that sometimes those were deliberately from Emma's perspectives, and then other times they were commenting directly on Emma Mm -hmm. and what she was thinking. So that was a cue.
2: No, yeah. And I would say, if you had asked me which Jane Austen novel to start with, I probably would not have told you Emma was the one to choose. Agree. (laughs) That and Mansfield Park are both her longest and her most complex.
1: Yeah, Pride and Prejudice is the most accessible, and I think Persuasion is the best crafted. Mm. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) So we threw you in in the deep end. Part of what's going on with the narrators, though, is that that's where a lot of the social satire comes from. Like, the narrators are importantly always not fully omniscient, but wiser than the characters in the text and able to sort of arch an eyebrow at the reader in ways that are ways that's always really useful to the point that austin is trying to make but i hear you on the bogging down thing for me this time around because i was trying to read it it's good to read quickly. austin when you have like time right and i didn't have time yes. this week and so trying to read it quickly and getting bogged down in the minutiae of the domestic life and having to like remind myself, like having to English professor myself. <laughs> I was on the bus today and I was like, why is she doing this to me? And then I'd be like, Brenna, you know what a radical act it was to write the domestic lives of women. That was a really important thing. And I was like, yeah, but I don't want to do it right now. I'm busy. <laughs> Get
0: to
2: it. Yeah. Well, also, there was a lot less to do at the time. <laughs> Their options were limited. They couldn't just go to a movie.
1: Yeah, it's true fine i guess i'll read another chapter at emma i hear the avengers doesn't come out for another 200 no i'm saying
2: like the characters can't like the characters (laughs) can only play cards or play piano or gossip about who played cards wrong or who got a new piano and
1: who took the wrong turn around the
0: room This honestly feels like Victorian Survivor, where these people are sequestered in each other's parlors for 95% of their lives, and it's just a matter of who is bitching and backstabbing each other is like the order of the day.
2: Also, you couldn't go outside because it's England, and you'd get sick, and doctors weren't good.
0: (laughs) Oh, man. At one point, I turned to my husband, Brian, and just said, I think a good 50% of this book is just people worrying about other people catching a cold as a result of them walking to or from various other people's houses. Yep.
1: And in fairness, the father himself is like, he's a bit of a paranoid shut-in, right? Since the death of yes. his wife. So like a lot of that comes from him and is just him being a paranoid Full shut-in. Full-blown yeah.
0: yeah, Totally.
1: And he's also looking for reasons to not have to leave his own house, which is something that I really like. I relate to him, like on a personal level. Oh mm. <laughs>
0: yes he and Knightley. <laughs> i love that one part where Knightley comments on mr weston's late arrival to the party and he says he went somewhere and then came back and he had the option of staying home and instead he <laughs> yes. came to this party <laughs> what is he doing and i was like mr Knightley, you and i are gonna get along yes, seriously
2: well. i could hang oh, and- with mr Knightley. <laughs> Yeah, and look, Jane Austen's side characters tend to be very funny caricatures. Mm -hmm. I will say the humor in this one is the humor of truly exhausting people, so the characters become very tiresome, especially her father. Mm -hmm. But I love an idea that she plants early on is that the father can't accept that anyone has a different experience than him so he assumes like because he can't have rich food that nobody can yep and he's constantly trying to get people to eat gruel
1: (laughs) yes i love him. he's like and then he asked if anyone wanted gruel and there's like two hands go up and everybody's (laughs) just like do we all have to do it there's so many great moments around the gruel actually now that you say it
2: Oh yeah and then and, and then the character of Miss Bates who's kind of the caretaker for mm. Jane Fairfax she's a really tiresome woman who talks a lot and the fact that she's so chatty is funny but when you have to read all of her tiresome chat yeah. in the you know the huge block paragraphs i think this is her novel where the humor is theoretically funny but sometimes hard to sit through mm-hmm. <laughs> because the characters yeah. are so exhausting
1: i think that's really fair
0: Yeah, there's one part late in the second volume where Mr. Weston is talking or rather talking over or he and Mrs. Elton are taking turns talking over one another because Mr. (laughs) Elton eventually gets married to a very tiresome lowbrow vulgar woman that Emma Mm -hmm. also hates. For good reason, though. (laughs) Yeah, for good reason. But they're just talking over one another. But it's that block text of them just trying to make their point at each other's expense and it goes on for like three or four pages mm-hmm. it's like jane jane i don't have time for this <laughs> <laughs> i need to finish the book as quickly as possible
2: not not the right way to approach emma so i'm sorry you both struggled this
1: week <laughs> yeah it wasn't the right timing which is unfair to jane i think
0: my Sorry, I'm going to keep paraphrasing myself as a contemporary audience who is a bit of an uneducated buffoon about Austin. But part of my struggle was I'm so used to this idea that if something is introduced early on, it must become important later. Mm. And there is a lot of that in this book. There's a lot of foreshadowing, yeah, a lot of particularly from plotting. chapter to chapter. Yeah, but there are times where... They're just having a conversation about characters who don't ever even appear in yeah. the book yeah. because it's part of their everyday dialogue. But I didn't know whether or not that was going to come back. So I was like, okay, make sure that you make a note of that because that could be important. Like, is it important that Frank went and got his haircut because they've talked about it for two
1: pages? But that's to show how like foppish he is, right? That yeah. he would go and get in his carriage and go to London for a flippin' haircut.
2: Well, yeah, and how careless and flaky he is with the people he's supposed to care about, mm-hmm. right? Are we also meant to
0: believe that he bought the pianoforte at the same time? Because that's when it mysteriously appears in Jane's house, right? Is like the day after,
1: oh. yeah.
2: point probably i mean i'm sure you can put that together i did not i did not build out a timeline of this but
0: (laughs) wait so we didn't mind map and we didn't timeline Uh oh wow we are just ineffectual (laughs) austin scholars here
1: (laughs) (laughs) should we
2: wait i assume you're gonna try a transition but can i bring up two things really quick (laughs)
1: yes of course you can
2: okay i got it first of all yeah emma is probably my least favorite of the austin novels although it is my favorite heroine because Mm -hmm. in that quote that we shared emma has a lot of flaws and she's jane austen's most complex character she actually has a hero's flaw and something to overcome Mm. that's more than just sensibility or whatever
1: pride prejudice exactly sense (laughs) sensibility mansfield persuasion
2: (laughs) (laughs) but I will say one thing that does bog it down from a modern, more progressive perspective is the random attack from gypsies that happens.
0: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That definitely
1: just came out of nowhere. Romantic England, not woke.
2: Yeah, not woke. But real quick, do you want to hear my queer reading of Emma?
1: Obviously. That's why we're here.
2: Should have led with this. Yeah, sorry.
0: (laughs) Is it about one of the Bateses?
2: No, it's of Emma. Oh, okay. Because Mm. she is very staunchly against the idea of shacking up with a man because she doesn't have to. She doesn't
1: have to. She's the only Austin heroine who doesn't have to.
2: Yeah, she's, you know, has enough means and status in her life that if she never married, she would be exactly the same her entire life and live a great life.
0: Okay, wait, can you clarify why that is? Because what makes her situation different than any other woman with a certain amount of means? Like if her dad died, wouldn't she be in the same situation and lose everything?
1: If I'm not mistaken, part of this has to do with the fact that the wills, like the laws for will and testament were liberalized between the publication and writing of Pride and Prejudice and Emma. So women couldn't inherit at the time of Pride and Prejudice.
2: Also, Pride and Prejudice is technically a period piece. It's set a couple years earlier than it was written.
1: Yeah, you're right. By the time the action of Emma is taking place, women had been given limited inheritance options. Also, it's important to note that as much as uh Emma's dad is kind of a pain in the arse to listen to through the text he's the most financially sound of the patriarchs so he is going to leave her with money and she's the only child so she's going to inherit it so if you contrast that with a situation like Pride and Prejudice where we have five sisters and a dad with no money and when he kicks the bucket they are all screwed right so it's like really different financial situations okay that when she looks to Harriet and is like trying to marry Harriet up, that's like more kind of reflective of the typical politics that we see in Austen's earlier novels.
0: Yes. Right. And that's because Harriet doesn't have an inheritance because she's adopted and they don't know who her parents are.
2: Yes. Yeah, exactly. Like in Sense and Sensibility, the whole plot of that is that they are rich people who become very poor because their father dies. Mm -hmm. But they are given a stipend. Mm -hmm. So that is part of it. And because her father has like no male heir, there's something... The Regency legal laws, you know, are just not really my forte. Mm -hmm. But anyway, so... They
1: were in the process of modernizing throughout this period, though. I read this really interesting article where someone was trying to, like, figure out the economy, like, the economics of Austin's world. Uh, And it's hard to do because things were actually changing really quickly. Like, the middle class emerges in this period for, like, the first time,
2: like, ever. How exciting. Yeah. But yeah, anyway, so she, she doesn't give a hoot about men right. <laughs> because she doesn't have to. But also she doesn't choose to, at least for about 80% of this book. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And what I think, just in the way that she describes women's beauty in such glowing terms, I mean, obviously I've read all the Jane Austen novels. This is something people are very like observant and cold about people's looks. They're like, oh, she has such a healthy complexion. They don't mind talking about how beautiful women or men or whatever are. Mm-hmm. right? But the kind of attention that she pays to all the women in her life versus the men in her life it's much more detailed and invested in their looks and their complexions and things like that and i think that she plays matchmaker because it allows her to flirt with women through the prism of men Mm. it's the only way that she can do that is by making men do it for her
1: it's the old triangulation
2: of desire theory i like it yeah that's 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 my little that's my little piece on emma
0: (laughs) I mean, particularly when you think of all of her interactions up to Knightley. I mean, you can obviously read the fact that they spar and the fact that he challenges her as symptoms of their inevitable love affair. But when you look at the way that she interacts with Frank, it almost seems like she's trying to convince herself that she should like him. Mm, And then, you know, she backtracks and then he comes back and she thinks, oh, okay, maybe, but half the time it's like no you're actually just having a conversation with this man and i know that means different things back in the 1800s but at the same time emma girl you're you're trying a little hard to convince yourself that you like this guy
1: i have an important piece of news that i just learned from wikipedia (laughs) there is a 2017 youtube web series adaptation of emma called the emma agenda where the role of mr knightley is cast as female making it the first lesbian version of emma on screen oh
2: is it by the same people that made the lizzie diaries
1: it's not because i watched that one that's called emma approved that was 2013 2013. oh okay
2: so they they did do one
1: they did do one yeah
2: because i know that they did a sanditon one too based on her unfinished novel which is interesting yeah
1: they were really uh, pemberley digital they were really into it for a period there i wonder what
0: (laughs) all of this talk about class, I find very interesting. And partially it's because I just saw an adaptation of David Copperfield. So obviously it's the Dickens book or serial, however you want to describe it. Oh,
1: is um, is what's his face in that?
0: It's Deb Patel is the main character. And then pretty much every English actor Hugh Laurie. alive. Is Hugh Laurie in that? Hugh Laurie is not in
1: that. Mm, what am I thinking of? This is why I'm bad at this show. Sorry, go on. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh no wait, Hugh Laurie is in it, yes. Yes. He's like the crazy guy who has to like fly a kite to get rid of his bad thoughts.
1: okay fun
0: yeah so it's a series of wacky incidents because of course it's dickens so it's every different character is like a separate adventure and they all come together in the end but it's very much about a boy who is born out of wedlock to a genteel woman and he is in this film adaptation he's of indian descent hence dev patel and he essentially has to find his way through the world being a person with no status and he you know tries to get educated and he tries to marry well and he makes friends with somebody who of course marries below them and they end up having like a scandalous runaway marriage that completely destroys this poor woman's her entire status and all those other kind of stuff but again this is me showing my ignorance i have no idea what the time frame was between something like Dickens and some, someone like Jane Austen, but there's so much of the classist construction and the, the idea that marriage is the kind of defining feature of how people interact or engage with that is, I don't know, like it's, it's something that fascinates me as somebody who is in a position where I don't ever have to worry about whether or not I'm marrying for money I mean, I think it's something people still joke about, like, oh, I need to marry someone rich so that I can have this lavish lifestyle. But it's become almost a farce in modern day life compared to, Brenna, as you said, a dire situation for women Mm -hmm. of the period. Mm -hmm.
2: And that's why I think Clueless is a perfect adaptation. (laughs) It's such a perfect (laughs) adaptation. Because where else is class more important than in In the modern high high school?
1: school. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, it's true. All right, well, why don't we transition over to Clueless?
1: Wow. You guys talk like grown-ups. Oh, well,
2: this is a really good school. Mr. Hall was way harsh. He gave me a C minus. <laughs> well, he gave me
1: a C, which drags down my entire average. Hello? There was a stop sign? I totally paused. You tried driving in platforms. Oh! Should I write them a note? <gasps> Ew! Get off of
2: me! Ugh, as if! Cher's got attitude about high school boys. It's a personal choice every woman has got to make for themselves. Cher is saving
1: herself for Luke Perry. Cher, you're a virgin? I mean, I'm not prude, I'm just highly selective. I mean, you see how picky I am about my shoes, and they only go on my feet.
0: Nice stems.
1: What's that? A dress. Says who? Calvin Klein. I'm gonna be the supermodel. What are you doing? Yo, you're getting on the freeway! Get on the freeway thing,
0: guys!
2: Here <laughs> <laughs> you go, girl. Are you okay?
1: Uh, I'm fine. things pick hair back Amber my plastic surgeon doesn't want me doing any activity where balls fly at my nose well there goes your social life
0: I'm gonna be a supermodel okay so because we've only done this process once before where we had the scarlet letter and easy a
2: which is a much less direct uh, approach (laughs)
0: Yeah, but for the purposes of clarifying in case someone has not seen Clueless, I have prepared a plot summary because I realized in editing these episodes just how awful I am at (laughs) conveying what's happening in the films, Mm -hmm. so bear with me but also feel free to interject at any point it's a, a couple of paragraphs so in writer director amy heckerling's 1995 film share horowitz played by alicia silverstone and her best friend Dion stacy dash boo,
2: mm-hmm.
0: are at the top of their beverly hills high school social ladder share has a wealthy father mel played by dan hedaya and an older stepbrother josh Paul red who is constantly underfoot and is the only one who openly mocks her
1: and is incapable of aging this is
0: true although he does look noticeably younger in this one when you compare him to say what he looks like now but but everything is still very much the
2: same (laughs) yeah he looks exactly the same except it just looks like he has a like a foundation on (laughs)
0: It's true. It looks like they de-aged modern Paul Rudd with like a touch of the CGI technology and then put him in this film. He looks a
2: little too smooth.
0: Really? (laughs) He's got a glow to him. Oh,
2: he does. No, his eyes are not as beautiful as in Halloween The Curse of Michael Myers out the same year. But that's fine.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Cher relishes the opportunity to plot and interfere with other people's lives, up to and including fabricating a romance for her teachers, Mr. Hall, Wallace Shawn, and Miss Geitz, whose name in real life is Twink Kaplan. No.
2: That's amazing.
0: (laughs) And of course, she does this in order to improve her grades. So the plot kicks in when Cher begins mentoring new transfer student Ty, played by Brittany Murphy. One makeover later, and Cher is ready to set tie up with the clique's social director Elton, Jeremy Sisto, who is eventually revealed to be shallow and only interested in Cher for her familial connections. Cher briefly flirts with new boy Christian, Justin Walker, who turns out to be gay. She fails her driving test, and she fights with Ty when it seems that Ty has eclipsed her in popularity. It is only after her realization that Ty loves Josh that she realizes she, in fact, loves Josh. What? And everything comes together. So Ty hooks up with skateboarder Travis, played by Breckenmeyer, who's making his second appearance on the show after briefly appearing in Josie and the Pussycats as a member of Jour.
1: Oh, oh, and yeah. Donald Faison was in Jour as well.
0: This is true. yes. Yeah, so Dion and her boyfriend Murray, Donald Vaison, recover from his head-shaving incident and their mutual freeway extravaganza.
2: <laughs> That's a great drag name, by the way. <laughs> freeway extravaganza. Amazing. <laughs> this is true.
0: That's very exclusive to
2: LA, though, isn't it? Oh, yeah. But we got plenty of drag queens. So this is true. Yeah. Make your mark.
0: Sharon <laughs> <laughs> and Josh begin dating, and they cement their status at the wedding of Mr. Hall and Mrs. Geis. Or Miss Guy, sorry.
1: Whoop whoop. And Cher catches the bouquet.
0: Cher catches that bouquet, man. Because she's 16 and Josh is in his first year of university and there's absolutely nothing icky about it and never has been. <laughs> I remember getting very stuck when I first watched this film on the fact that they were brother and sister because...
1: I found that really upsetting when I first watched this. I mean... It bothered me less this time.
0: yeah. The age discrepancy was a bigger deal for me
1: this yeah. time. Yeah.
2: The thing that helps is that Alicia Silverstone does not look 16 years old. Like not even mm. a little bit. So look, obviously that's a problem when you're transposing, you know, a novel from the early 1800s. Because <laughs> most of the happy endings in the Austen novels are you marry your cousin. Yeah. So.
0: Well, and how much older is Mr. Knightley than Emma? Isn't Ooh. he something
1: like... 16 in his years. Early... He's yeah. 37 years old.
2: He talks about like being there when she was born and holding her as a baby that
1: are really unsettling
2: that really had a very
1: um celine dion and her husband kind of vibe
0: (laughs) with less exploitation this is such an upsetting relationship (laughs) yeah so i guess important things for people to know about clueless it debuted in july of 1995 and ended up becoming one of the biggest hits of the year i mean The grosses in the 90s were very different than what they are in contemporary times. So the film cost $12 million and it ended up grossing $56 million, but it only opened to 10. So it actually ended up grossing five times its production budget, which is a pretty sizable thing.
2: That's beautiful. It's so good.
0: I think a lot of people would say that its major contributions to the cultural canon is the way the characters talk in this film, Mm -hmm. as well as the way that they dress. So linguistically, as well as fashion wise, this film left a big footprint on people.
2: Yes, (laughs) yes, it did.
0: That's all I got. (laughs) (laughs) It's memorable for no other reason than that. And the fact that I can probably quote every line of dialogue.
1: The soundtrack is phenomenal. Also, can we just say? I was in a crummy mood when I sat down to watch this last night. And I was like, it was like the first few bars of, I guess it's Kids in America that it opens with, right? Yes. Anyway. Yes, it
0: is. Yes. The Noxima commercial. I
1: was just like, I am so in. I forgot how much I enjoy you. <laughs> Little movie that could. Really enjoyed it and i do i think i think brennan's exactly right this is the exact perfect way and you know what joe that's the same thing we talked about when we talked about the adaptation of easy a is Mm -hmm. that to echo that kind of closed and limited society that the characters in in scarlet are living in you pretty much have to be in a high school and here to echo those same kind of life or death class divisions you pretty much have to be in a high school that's great
2: Mm-hmm. oh yeah it, it's genius because like in modern times the approach to kind of the obsessive approach to trying to couple people off mm-hmm. and the like really severe social strata involved in that and then the, obviously the like kind of cloistered nature of it all where everyone's just stuck in the same place together there's nowhere better
1: nope it's true
0: Well, i also love the idea that this film is capable of taking not just the class-based system but the way that different people talk as a symptom or a symbol of their different class structure like it really struck me how heavy the affectation is that Brittany murphy adopts mm-hmm. when she's introduced <laughs> this time and the fact that Cher even comments on it like we need to work on not just your fashion but also i can't remember i literally just said i could quote every line and now mm. i've forgotten it but you know she says like okay we need to work on your vocabulary she wants her to adopt more highfalutin language. And it's important to note, like this is a couple of years before Dawson's Creek came along and supposedly reinvented the YA genre. Mm-hmm.
2: I was just going to bring up the specter of Kevin Williamson. This is such a Kevin Williamson script pre-Scream.
0: Mm-hmm. This came out the year before Scream, which is also like that script is held up as one of the benchmarks of defining teen and YA genre. But if you read the behind the scene, there's a book called As If, which is all about the the sort of oral history of how the film came together. You can read the Wikipedia entry as well. And she and a bunch of the producers sat in on a actual high school class in the valley for, I think, a month to get a feel for how teens talk and how they interact. Kind of like observing animals in their natural (laughs) environment.
2: That is true commitment. I don't think I could do that.
0: Uh, I wouldn't want to. The line when Cher has, uh, when she describes the way that boys dress in the slow motion to shoop. (laughs) (laughs) Mm -hmm. All I could think about was, I feel like that's a little bit of Amy Hagerling peeking through and being like, what are these doofuses wearing? (laughs) Because that... Oh man, the fashion. The girl's fashion is so good, and then the men's fashion is so bad.
1: I love that first shot of Donald Faison walking across the quad and like his pants are like falling off his butt. <laughs> like it's just so perfect. Such a good first shot. That was
0: me. I'm not going to lie at all. I remember actively trying to campaign my mother to allow me to buy I think size 38 or size 48.
1: <laughs> no! oh <my> Wait. <laughs> I knew you when you were 19. That's hilarious. Yeah,
0: but this would have been back when I was like 14 or 15.
1: Oh, man.
2: Question, are the sizings different in Canada? I must assume <laughs> they are.
1: They
0: are not. No. Oh, no, Okay. <laughs>
2: Because as far as I know, ours are by inches and y'all don't have those as far as I know.
1: Oh, my goodness. My husband the other day posted this flowchart online of like how Canadians measure things. It's like we are all over the map.
2: Okay. I mean, I totally get that. Okay, cool.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I think part of what is so great about this film is that everyone is genuinely charming, maybe with the exception of Amber, but like every character has some kind of redeeming Grace, because they're still caricatures, right? They're still being outrageous mm-hmm. and extreme the way Austin has written her characters in Emma. Mm-hmm. But there's something really lovable about almost every single one of them, too, that makes it really watchable. Even if you think you're just going to turn it on to kind of roll your eyes at it, like you get sucked into how charismatic all the actors are.
0: Oh, Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of people focus on Alicia's performance and talk about how revolutionary that is. But really, this film only works because she's also surrounded by a bunch of very likable, very interesting, very dynamic performers. Mm-hmm. Like, there's a reason a bunch of these people have gone on to do other bigger things. Mm-hmm. Well, those of whom are still alive, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. So.
2: Yeah. And the happier news. I mean, even, even Meyer as the like repulsive stoner Travis... Mm -hmm. that character could so easily have been just a garbage bin of a human being. Yes. But he's so gentle and sweet. So
1: gentle. Oh, I love a soft boy. He's just really gentle.
2: (laughs) He's just gentle and dopey and kind. And you know that he would be the perfect match for Ty if only Cher would not get in the way.
1: Yes. I think that's part of why that works so well, right? One of the things that I, in terms of the structure of Emma, one of my frustrations when I read it is that I want to know more about Robert Martin earlier.
0: he's not even a character. He's not
1: even a character, but you only ever really know him through Emma's perspective of him and then the narrator's perspective on Emma's perspective of him. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas this gives us an example of what Robert Martin looks like in real life. (laughs) Um, He's gentle. He's a stoner up
0: on the grassy knoll. But you know what I mean?
1: Like, yeah, he doesn't have class status or positioning, but he is gentle and he is right for, in this case, Ty, right?
2: Yeah, he has something Mm -hmm. to give.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, he gets to be more of a whole person, which I appreciated. I love
0: his monologue where he talks about all the different reasons that contribute to his tardiness. Oh, yeah. His, his
2: uh, acceptance speech. <laughs> mm-hmm.
1: Oh, gosh. All of them are charming. I really enjoyed this. I was saying to Joe in the text, we always end up texting about stuff before the show, and I was like, I just really loved watching it. It really cheered me up. And oh, wait, but casual ableism. Holy cow. Ooh,
2: there's, there's a lot of casual lots of things.
1: Really forgot how we were all just walking around talking in the 90s. <laughs> like these things aren't outrageously offensive and it's funny because it's not the first time that joe and i've had this experience re- revisiting a text that we were really comfortable with in our own youth it is staggering to me just how um how often like the r word gets thrown around yeah and with such sort of zeal and like lack of consciousness about it in a way that yeah. shows such a shift
2: it's so normalized like it's just though it's it's the word they would use yeah mm-hmm. yeah
1: and it's yep. simultaneously totally believable and utterly shocking to me now yeah. to watch.
2: Although I, I was talking to Joe on Twitter earlier. I really, I'm ready to reclaim the term cake boy oh. <laughs> for gay people.
1: <laughs> I like it.
0: So this is a reference to Christian. This is what Murray refers to Christian yeah. as when he's trying to clarify that Christian is gay. So he says, your boy Christian's a cake boy. And the girls are like,
2: what? <laughs> <laughs> Because it's not a real thing. And then he goes on a big rant
0: of gay stereotypes. Yeah, I was going to say, that's not a thing. Yes,
2: it's stereotypes, but he doesn't ever slide into slurs. So I was like, thank you.
1: (laughs) Things to be grateful for in 1990s film.
2: And then there is that really weird thing with the lesbian gym coach, where it's the idea that lesbians hate men, and that's why they're lesbians. Yeah. It's a whole thing, but... It's a whole thing. Christian as a character could have been like a huge stereotype and he's not and i appreciate that
1: yeah Mm -hmm. i agree actually i think he's for especially for a a routine comedy in 95 he's a pretty sort of well-rounded fleshed out actual human being of a character yeah and
2: the thing that i love is that he's frank churchill which means that jane fairfax is just the concept of homosexuality Amazing. Or like the bartender
0: at, at the bar that they <laughs> Maybe, go to. Yeah. Oh, well, actually, you bring up a good point, Brendan. So in case people were wondering, Wikipedia is very helpful at distilling who is who. So Cher is obviously Emma. Josh is Mr. Knightley. Interestingly enough, they include Miss Geis, Miss Taylor, Miss Weston as a target of Cher's matchmaking. I'm like, oh yeah, I, that, that's okay, I, sure.
2: I actually built out a little map of how I think everyone... Mm-hmm who their analog is, and that's that's who I put. I think that the only other option for that would be Dion, but I think she's more like Emma's sister. Like, totally. she kind of plays that role yeah. in this movie.
0: Oh, interesting. Okay, yeah, because I was struggling to figure out if Miss Weston was meant to be Dion or not. Because that's such a... She's a big character in the book. I mean, she's a big character who kind of comes to nothing in the book, but... Like Dion is such a, a central figure in this film.
2: Well, you know, because you need the little, like, you know, the plastics. You need the popular girl clique. But mm-hmm. the idea of her, like, being happily, unhappily in love with uh, Donald Faison. Perfect. I right. feel like that is a pretty close analog to her sister and how she can, like, look at their relationship.
1: Yeah. That
0: is very fair. Yeah, that's, I think, a lot better than what I came up with. So then we've got Ty is Harriet, of course. Her father is her father. Travis is Robert Martin, as you said, Brenna. And then Christian is Frank Churchill. And I would actually argue, I mean, they miss Elton being Elton. Yeah,
1: which little on the nose, everybody. I
0: was thinking that Amber kind of becomes... Mrs. Elton. Yeah, I think Amber becomes Miss Elton because she's the vulgar kind of low class person that they all have to put up with.
1: Nice. Yeah, you're right.
2: And this movie really, plot wise, does map on way closer to Emma than I thought at first. Like the first time I watched it,
1: do you know what's hilarious? So this came out in ninety five. In ninety six, we had the Gwyneth Paltrow Emma,
2: yep, which is
1: like a movie that I aggressively hated.
2: Oh, it's terrible! It's I so think a lot bad. I mean, really like,
1: this it, right? is a way better Emma adaptation than the Emma adaptation
2: was. Well I've committed a lot of my life to watching <laughs> Jane Austen adaptations. Sure, and this is. Among the best, I would say, especially in terms of modernizations, only yes. this and mm-hmm. Garinder Chada's Bride and Prejudice oh, hold, a, hold a candle. I love
0: Bride and Prejudice.
2: Because that one also, that translates *Pride and Prejudice into a modern day society where like Austenian approaches to romance are still around.
0: Mm-hmm, yeah, because mm-hmm. that's the caste system, right?
2: Roughly, not like explicitly, but it's kind of the remnants of that. But yes. Okay. But yeah, no, Clueless is almost peerless in the way that it captures Jane Austen's tone and the way that she like the really acidic, snarky satire that she uses. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, it's perfect. It's perfect.
0: I was legitimately surprised because I I had mostly finished the reading when I sat down to watch the film. And I was shocked at the number of things where I was like, oh, that's oh, yeah. a scene directly lifted from the book, like wholesale. Because when you look at any reviews for this film, everyone says it's a loose, it's a loose adaptation. Oh, no. And I'm like, Those this reviews is a are full-on written, adaptation. I don't know. Oh,
1: they were written by people <laughs> who hadn't read Emma. That's what I think. Because if you've read it, it's, it's so clear and it's so... Delicious, right? It's like a series of Easter eggs that are just for you. It's, yeah. I love it.
2: Like literally down to the parts where Ty is burning a collection of like souvenirs that she kept from her short-lived romance with with Elton.
0: Mm-hmm. I love the update of the picture in the locker for oh, the yeah. portrait. Yes. Yes. So clever.
2: And then the part where Emma is, you know, disappointed that she doesn't get invite, invited to a party that she didn't want to go to in the first place. Yes. <laughs> mm-hmm.
1: And don't forget the part where the pianoforte is played by the Mighty Mighty Bostones. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> that was one of the things that Brenna had to text me. I
1: was so excited that the Mighty Mighty Bostones <laughs> were there. They're all still happy.
0: So Brennan, you wouldn't know this, but uh, ska was once a thing that happened. I <laughs> <know about laughs> ska.
2: Look, I grew up in Orange County. We got a lot of ska people. <sighs> One of my substitute teachers in my Spanish class was in a ska band.
1: That's amazing. That is a great story.
0: Thank you. Did they try to encourage you to come to the shows or was it like you're not legal?
2: Okay, this is going to be very mid to late 2000s. Oh, I'm excited. But I saw him open for Bowling for Soup.
1: Oh, my God. Wow. Yep.
2: (laughs) (laughs) It was a great show. I bet it was.
1: Oh, this is a good story.
2: Also, one thing I will say is that uh, Cher Horowitz is very progressive about the concept of virginity, and I appreciated that.
1: Yes. Right? Yes.
0: I always thought that that conversation in the restaurant where they talk about the status of Cher's virginity, which is funny because, you know, Brenna, you and I just had this conversation about technical virginity yeah. and after.
1: Ugh.
2: And <laughs> I'm so glad I didn't go on that episode.
0: Uh, yeah, fun fact for listeners: Brennan was invited to come on that episode, and he politely declined.
1: He's smarter than me.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for doing it, though. It was very eye-opening.
0: Uh, but I, I do love Cher's analogy where she says, "You know, I'm particular about what I put on my feet." <laughs> <laughs> Because I love that it's not a romantic idealization. Like, she says that she wants her night with Christian to go well, but then she also then immediately regrets how hasty her decision was mm-hmm. the next day prior to the freeway incident. But I do think it is. You're right, Brennan. It's quietly progressive in the fact that she doesn't also slain... Or, shame?
2: Slut shame. She
0: doesn't slut shame any of her friends... Though I will say one of one of the biggest laughs that I got in this entire film, they're all from Brittany Murphy's, Ty. There's that one obvious joke where Cher says, oh, Ty, you know, you've got something that the other girls don't have. And Ty just says, oh, I'm not a virgin, which I thought was funny. <laughs> but I most love of all the biggest laugh I got the entire film because I realized when I had first seen this back in the day in the mid 90s, I had completely mistook the reference to Coke oh yeah so when ty shows up during the middle of gym practice and you know she gets invited over by Cher and dion she says you know i could really go for some herbal refreshment and dion doesn't understand and she says oh we've got you know lunch at a moment we don't have tea but we've got coke (laughs) and then ty says oh no shit you guys got coke here
2: (laughs) that's such a good exchange
0: and at the time, I just remember thinking, oh, she's so backwater hick, like she's from such a small town that they must not have Coca-Cola. Yeah. And then
2: rewatching it.
0: <laughs> oh, I think she's maybe talking about a Coke of a different kind.
2: <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm glad you made that realization. I'm glad it <laughs> seems like an important transition point in your life.
0: I was a naive child, okay? <laughs> I was like Mr. Knightley. I spent a lot of time at home, not going to parties if I didn't have to, because I wasn't invited.
2: (laughs) Uh, Who needs it?
0: Exactly. I regret nothing now.
1: Do people have last burning thoughts before we pivot to the YA bingo? I
2: have one last thing real quick. Do it. I did grow up in Southern California, so y'all are not getting the full experience of that freeway scene. (laughs) 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 It is a perfect scene. When you're learning to drive in Southern California, it is a wild time. And just the line, getting off the freeway, reminds you how important love is. It's maybe the funniest line ever written.
0: Because you've got nothing but freeways out there, right?
2: (laughs) Oh, yeah. It's the only way to travel, basically. Man.
0: That's why we have the Californian skit on SNL.
2: Oh, yeah. Or, like, literally when I got my new car and I had to you know, drive it in a square around the lot. What one of the lines of that square was a freeway?
0: Jeez. <laughs> oh, that's uh, that's not good. Okay, well, why don't we transition yes. into some Y a bingo? So Emma, clueless, what have you folks got?
2: Bingo
1: Not a good bingo. I have an obvious one and then one that I'm gonna argue for. Okay, okay. So my obvious one is allusions to classic lit. Yep. Yeah. yeah. And this one is just for the movie, but I'm going to make a big push for musicality because I had forgotten how important the soundtrack is to the film adaptation in terms of setting tone and mood and everything, and also I had forgotten how freaking iconic it is as a soundtrack for 1995. I was I was 12. All of those songs are life-changingly important, oh, and yeah. I'm going to argue for it here. <laughs>
2: and it made that cover of Kids in America a huge hit. Oh, yeah, yeah, this it did. It's true. Also, I
0: love my Cranberries tape out in the quad. Do you mind if I go get it? <laughs> <laughs> I love Elton's obsession with the Cranberries. <laughs> uh, okay, Brennan, what have you got?
2: I mean, I agree with Brenna. Also, Wedding, obviously. Yes. Mm-hmm. And I'd say Acerbic Wit. Yes
0: yes finally shows up
2: (laughs) thank goodness
0: and i'm going to add some (laughs) gaslighting
1: oh for sure yes
0: and then i don't know how do we feel about adding mediocre white boys or do we feel like the men of this film universe and this book are worthwhile gentlemen
2: I feel like the concept of mediocre white boys as expressed on the bingo card is that the characters or the film thinks that they're better than they are. Yes. And I don't think that's the case here.
0: I agree. Okay. Then we shall keep it off.
2: Okay. I have a really quick question though. Hit. Mm-hmm. The quote that you play every episode, bingo, not a good bingo. That what my that?
1: toddler now does from memory. If he hears the word <laughs> bingo out in the world.
2: I love that. Uh-huh. <laughs> what is that a clip from?
0: I have no idea. So. When we first started this podcast I went looking for free sound effects and when you put in bingo that was one of about a dozen options but it definitely sounds like it comes from an old movie Mm -hmm. which is one of the reasons why I picked it.
2: Every time I hear it I'm racking my brain I'm so glad I had a chance to talk to you two directly about (laughs) it. (laughs) (laughs) Okay sorry continue.
1: It's so cute my toddler will be like He'll hear the word bingo, like, I don't know, on TV or something. And he looks at me and he goes, Nada go bingo. Oh, that's <laughs> so cute. That's so cute.
0: Children of the future.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> okay. Well, this was lovely. And yeah, I feel like I didn't really get to experience the full Emma, but I'm happy that I got to rewatch Clueless.
1: And now we know we're eventually going to do Sense and Sensibility and Material Girls. So life yeah. is good.
2: Uh... And again, I will be there. You have no options. <laughs> yeah, option thanks for nice. that, Brennan. <laughs> if you want to do From Prada to Nada, I'll consider it.
1: Oh, my God. Amazing. Amazing. Isn't that a parasol one?
2: No, it's Alexa Vega and uh, uh, okay. <laughs> Camilla Bell. <laughs> okay. And your 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 favorite uh, handsome man, uh, Nicolas D'Agosto.
0: Oh, I do like him, though. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. I could be persuaded. <gasps> see what I did there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah no, yeah, no okay. we
2: got it we were we were there okay
0: <laughs> so brennan if people wanted to find you on the internets where would they go
2: i don't know why you would but you can find my podcasts they're called scream 101 and attack of the queer wolf you can find me on twitter at it's raining Brens, and that's kind of the hub for all the you know writings and podcasts that i do
1: that is a really excellent screen name by the way thank you so, folks, if you want to tell us uh, that Clueless is, I mean, I'm going to give you a list to pick from here. You could tell us that Clueless is great. You could tell us that Clueless is a, awesome. B. You could tell us that Clueless is fantastic. You tell us the closest, life-changing, you know, any range of feedback about the film. Yeah,
0: we will accept nothing else.
1: You can find us on...
2: <laughs> D hash- quietly problematic, but forgivable. Yes, no, absolutely. <laughs> like, let's not lose
1: sight. Uh, you can find us on hashtag HKHSpod on the Twitters. That'll get both of us. Joe, if they just want to yell at you personally, how would they do that?
0: Yeah, which is entirely possible. So they would use at B storm my remote, and that's the letter B.
1: And I'm at Brenna C. Gray. That's Gray with an A. Uh, And if you've got something a little bit longer, a little bit of uh, your own queer reading of Emma, you want to send us the essay length version of that, you can email us at hkhspod at com
0: hmm. Yes. And just a quick shout out to both Leo and Max, who did send us emails in the time period between the last recording and this recording. It's always lovely when we hear from people who want to give us book recommendations. So for sure, keep it up.
1: And I think we have a roundup of those coming up. So you'll hear what our friends had to say uh, in a coming episode. It just was really important today that I tell you about Saved by the Bell. So sorry.
0: This is fair. It's a <laughs> Big news for you and only you.
1: (laughs) Speaking of big news for me and only me, next week's episode, we're doing Riverdale. Yes. Joe is so happy. I'm super excited. Joe's really excited and it's going to be great. And I'm really happy. To be making him watch it. I'm really happy to be making him watch something he'll hate for once. Mm-hmm.
0: It's a new day. Yeah. 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 So we're going to read the first two volumes of the Wade comic, and I think we're going to watch the first couple of episodes of the first season. And Brenna, I assume that you'll fill in some of the other trash that has happened in additional seasons. You're
2: coming in so hot, Joe.
0: <laughs> I have watched up to I think the middle of the second season and I just grew to hate it so much more with each passing episode but I will acknowledge the things that it does well in that episode I promise
1: I just opened my inbox today at work to find the copy edits for a scholarly article I recently wrote about Riverdale
0: hell yeah. Nice.
1: yep so coming at you with some hot takes next mm-hmm. episode
0: Yeah, and that's perfectly timed (laughs) to coincide with the return of the show proper on the CW for season four, in case you're wondering.
1: Joe is always with the timing. Mm -hmm. All right, folks. So until next time, I'll see you on the page. Yes,
0: and I will see you on the screen.